United Nations report warns the impacts of climate change are increasing and inevitable. Experts say that we have until 2030 to avoid catastrophe. Temperatures in the Arctic have warmed about two or three times. It will be very difficult and impossible for our children to control climate change. This is South of Two Degrees, and I am your host, Brian Barnes. It is so good to have you with us today on the only podcast dedicated to bringing unfiltered scientific research to the forefront of the climate conversation. We've got a great show for you today, my friends. So once more, into the fray. Welcome back, and I hope you enjoyed last week's show on the anthropogenic influences on the Australian bushfires of 2019 and 2020. You know, we received a ton of positive feedback, so it's great to know that you're enjoying the show and the content we're putting out there is relevant to your desires to understand anthropogenic climate change. Today, we're going to look at anthropogenic climate change in a slightly different way, as the last two weeks have ended on some pretty dire notes. So I want to bring it up this week and look at a paper that demonstrates what we can do when we commit ourselves to change. The paper we'll dive into today is called A Pause in Southern Hemisphere Circulation Trends Due to the Montreal Protocol. To put that in layman's terms, I'm going to talk about your ozone hole today. Or, well, sorry, Goose, our ozone hole. For my listeners born after about 1980, let me break it down for you. You see, it starts with a bit of a story, and the protagonist of this story is randomly your refrigerator. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, refrigerators used toxic gases to cool them down, namely ammonia or NH3, methyl chloride, CH3Cl, and sulfur dioxide or SO2. In 1929, there was an explosion and subsequent fire at the Cleveland Clinic in Chicago, and by some reports, 120 people died, namely from breathing poisonous gas. While some individuals wrongly attribute this tragedy to methyl chloride, as there have been several other poisonings in Chicago recently from it, the Cleveland Clinic disaster was actually caused by nitrocellulose X-ray film burning that caused the release of carbon monoxide and nitrogen oxides. While it wasn't the direct connection that some assert it was, it did spark a national debate in the U.S. on the use of poisonous gases. Interestingly enough, a year before the accident in 1928, a mechanical engineer by the name of Thomas Migley Jr. of General Motors, also the same guy who came up with leaded fuel, developed a safer refrigerant using chlorofluorocarbons or CFCs while working in a joint venture between GM, Frigidaire, and DuPont. The first patent was issued on December 31st, 1928 to Frigidaire, yet it was DuPont and General Motors that introduced it under the name we all know, Freon, in 1930. Now, thanks to its non-toxicity, regulations were passed not long after, mandating Freon as the only sanctioned refrigerant for use in public spaces. Its use was widely expanded as propellants in bug sprays, hairspray, paint, and a lot of other products following World War II. At its peak, one million tons of Freon was produced and sold annually to the tune of one billion U.S. dollars. Now, in the 1970s, Chemist Frank Sherwood Rowland and Mario Molina of the University of California, Irvine, studied and subsequently discovered that CFCs could be a major source of inorganic chlorine in the stratosphere. Why is that important? 
Well, for that, let's skip to 1985. You see, in 1985, British researcher Joe Farman published a paper titled Large Losses of Total Ozone in Antarctica Reveal Seasonal Chlorine Oxide and Nitric Oxide Interaction. And he did this in the journal Nature. Now, you see, while stable in the lower atmosphere, when CFCs make it to the stratosphere, UV light breaks the bond attaching the chlorine atom. While I'm greatly simplifying here, through a series of chemical processes, the chlorine atom destroys ozone molecules and returns to a free chlorine atom that can then break up more ozone. In fact, it has been found that a single chlorine atom can break up over 100,000 ozone molecules. Now, that's the story most of us know on how CFCs destroy ozone. However, it's not that simple. The chlorine released from CFCs actually form fairly stable compounds. So how does it get free to become the destroyer of ozone? Well, it's because our beautiful planet doesn't play by the same rules in every location. For those of you that were with me in episode 3 where we discussed ozone through my hoodie analogy, you'll remember that we want ozone in the stratosphere. Unfortunately, as Joe Farman discovered, this breaking down of CFCs was causing the thinning of the ozone over Antarctica. So now you may be asking, why just Antarctica? Why not Stillwater, Oklahoma or Zagreb, Croatia? Well, that's a fascinating one. In both the Arctic and Antarctic, you have unrelenting stratospheric winds from a low-pressure system that circles the poles called the polar vortex. Yeah, it's the same thing you've heard about on these sensationalized newscasts, but we're talking about a different aspect of that system. In Antarctica, during the winter, when you have three months of near-perpetual darkness, things get, well, shall we say, very cold. As a result of the winds and the extreme cold, despite the very dry and thin air, clouds form out of water, ice, and even nitric acid, providing a rare surface for some unusual reactions to take place. There, the stable chlorine molecule hibernates, if you will, until the sun breaks the darkness in about October, allowing for the reaction we discussed earlier to continue until the polar vortex weakens and dissipates and the conditions warm sufficiently to halt the reaction, only to start again next year. Now, fast forward two years from Joe Farman's paper, and 27 nations came together in Montreal to address the situation, a speed that unfortunately seems incomprehensible in today's age. But for my younger listeners, back in the 1980s, we trusted science. We listened to scientists when they sounded warning bells, And we didn't blow them off just because our chosen political affiliation said we should. Strange to imagine, I know. Nevertheless, 27 nations came together to address the damaging effects of CFCs. The treaty, which was agreed upon on September 16, 1987 and entered into force on January 1, 1989, has been hailed as one of the greatest examples of international cooperation. It was successful in part due to burden-sharing amongst the party nations and regional conflict mitigation. Now, the treaty focuses on halogenated hydrocarbons that are often referred to as ozone-depleting substances or ODSs. It's undergone nine revisions to include more ODSs over time. And amazingly, the two treaties contained within the Montreal Protocol have been ratified by 196 nations and the European Union, making it the first universally ratified treaty in the history of the United Nations. 
All that brings us to where we are today. And the paper we are looking at, I'll pause in the Southern Hemisphere circulation trends due to the Montreal Protocol that was published 25 March 2020, or a mere two months ago last Sunday. While not alone, the ozone hole has become the dominant force in atmospheric circulation trends in the summertime in the Antarctic. To evaluate the progression of the ozone hole and any differences since the Montreal Protocol, the study looked at two data sets, one from 1980 to 2000 and the other from 2000 to 2017. In it, they evaluated trends in three key areas, namely the central latitude of the eddy-driven jet stream, the southern annular mode, or SAM, and the edge of the Hadley cell. So what are those and why look at those items? Well, let's take a quick look. The middle latitude of the eddy-driven jet stream is exactly what it's described as. It's the jet stream, or air current, that's driven by eddies, or circular wind currents, on either side of it. For a visualization of this, think of a picture of Jupiter for a minute. It's got its bands of stripes and spirals, and those spirals act to drive central bands at increased speeds. Now, the same thing happens in the Antarctic, and this paper looked at the center latitude of that jet stream and how it has changed. The reason it's important is that the reduction in ozone during the hole formation in the Antarctic spring causes a reduction in the absorption or solar radiation into the atmosphere. This in turn causes localized cooling, which drives an increase in the polar vortex and subsequent delay in its breakup, along with a shift of the jet stream towards the South Pole. Now, the Southern Annular Mode Index is recorded directly from local stations and measures the zonal pressure differences between the latitudes of 40 degrees south and 65 degrees south. Essentially, it's an observation of the seesaw effect, if you will, as a result of lower and higher pressure systems. A positive or strengthening SAM is an indication of a stronger than average westerly between 50 and 70 degrees south, with a weakening of westerlies between 30 and 50 degrees south. This is important as the SAM is the major driver of variability in surface temperature, ocean currents, and many other aspects of the climate in the southern hemisphere. Finally, the edge of the Hadley cell is the basic atmospheric circulation you learn about in school, where hot air rises at the equator to between 10 and 15 kilometers above the Earth's surface and moves poleward before sinking to the surface again, only to move towards the equator once more. Now, this paper looked at the edge of the Hadley cell, or rather, at what point does the air drop to the surface before it starts moving towards the equator again? This is extremely important because where the air drops, usually around 30 degrees north and south of the equator, determines where significant amounts of rain does or doesn't fall. To put it in perspective, the majority of Earth's arid regions are under the descent of the Hadley cell edge at approximately 30 degrees of latitude. As anthropogenic climate change occurs, the Hadley cell expands increasing the regions susceptible to drought and expanding desert regions as well. Now, when all these data sets were crunched, some interesting trends were found. Both the edge of the Hadley cell as well as the eddy-driven jet had a distinct trend of moving south towards the pole during the Arctic summer up until the year 2000. Coupled with this, the SAM index had seen a strengthening trend from 1980 until 2000 during those same months. However, starting in the year 2000, all of those trends flattened, and this coincided with an increase in detected ozone over the same period. 
To put it simplistically, as the hole in the ozone started to heal as a result of the direct action under the Montreal Protocol, these three climate systems stopped their trends that had been occurring since well before the data for the study started in 1980. So what does all this mean? To start with, it means that something we screwed up has started to correct as a result of swift, or I guess swift once we discovered it, human intervention. These changes are just starting to show themselves in observations and will have significant impact on systems well beyond the scope of this study. Potentially ocean circulation, ocean salinity, type and location of rainfall, etc. Now, the most important takeaway, though, is that we can correct our actions. Just like any child can correct their behavior and become, uh, hopefully, responsible individuals, we as a society can correct the anthropogenic climate change we have unfortunately set in motion. Yes, it'll take a hell of a lot of work, but if the Montreal Protocol did one thing beyond starting to heal our planet, it stands as a beacon that we can make a difference, but only if we are willing to put aside our political ideologies and debates and actually try. And that's our show for this week. I really wanted this show to end on a positive note. And hopefully the paper we discussed today gives you some hope for the future and encourages you to go out and be the change you want to happen in the world. Now, if you're enjoying the show, please leave a rating or better yet a comment on Apple Podcasts or your favorite listening platform. Be sure to join me back here again next week. And aside from checking out all the latest information on the website, blog, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram, do this for me. Tell one other person about this show in the next week. Have at least one conversation about climate change with someone else. And above all, keep it south of two degrees.